CAO TBC has teamed up with The Generalist. That's hosted by me, Jen Talbanze, to produce some exclusive content for us OTs in the beautiful province of British Columbia. This collaboration is all about knowledge translation to make it easier to keep up with the changing landscape, high quality research, and OT news across the province. Welcome to CAO TBC, the podcast. Well, this is this is exciting for me. I'm uh, a podcast virgin, so this is quite exciting. <laughs> I think a lot of OTs are, and that's a shame. So let's let's start changing that. Get more people chatting and sharing their thoughts and ideas. Mm-hmm. I want to start with getting to know who you are as an OT and your role in academia and advocacy. Is there a moment in your career that you can look back on and say this is? This is the pinnacle. This is what OT really feels like. I think that's quite a hard one for me. I worked clinically in England in a university neurological center and then in Regina, Saskatchewan in a neurological rehabilitation center. And then I moved into the community. And I think it was when I moved into working in rural communities that I really got a different insight into how relevant the things that we were teaching or trying to teach in the rehabilitation centers were. And it gave me much more of an opportunity to see what people were confronting in their everyday lives and in the context of their families, um, coping with you know, severe mental illnesses and um, physical impairments and um, some really significant challenges sometimes overlaid with those of other family members. So I think it was that point where I really began to reflect on how relevant some of what I had been enthusiastically teaching in the institutions was to to people's everyday lives. Right. And it kind of took that shift to rural to reflect on your practice. I think it did. And I know a lot of people, um, ask me about the self-care, my obsession with the self-care productivity and leisure categories. And and it was when I was working in the community that the first enabling occupation book, written in fact, its predecessor, the the, uh, guidelines for client-centered practice in OT, the yellow books came out. (laughs) And it it was really exciting because here was a model and a theory that laid out that we should be involved with much more than just people's self-care and much more than just trying to return them to employment but looking at a much broader picture of their lives with with many things that they wish to do in terms of self-care productivity and leisure so when when that was first articulated i i i thought it was wonderful it was really really exciting but it was just that as i continue to work in, in rural communities and you realize that the, for many farming people, there is no divide between productivity and leisure. And you also realize that, that there's many things that fall outside of those parameters. I was, I was quite eager to await for the revision of the model that I was sure would be forthcoming. And as the years went by, I was disappointed that instead of it being something that was 
constantly open to revision and revisiting in, 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 uh, in light of empirical evidence that instead of that, there seemed to be a doubling down within the profession on those categories. And, and that was when I really started to try to raise my hand and say, you know, I think we are limiting ourselves and overlooking what is important in the lives of, of so many people. I think that's so powerful that you saw that as a jumping off point or a starting point for OTs to really have this model, but to be true to what we say about evidence-based and open to critique and criticism. How did you know that was your role to start questioning or to start putting those questions out there? I really didn't, but nobody else seemed to be doing it. And uh, I was fortunate because as I as time went along, I had trained as an occupational therapist in England when what one got was a diploma. And so when I moved to Canada and everybody already had a BSc, I was conscious of the fact that my education was a little lacking. So at some point I went back to England and uh, upgraded to a, an MSc and then really got the academic bug and went to UBC to do an interdisciplinary doctoral degree at a time when they didn't have a PhD program in the Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy. So it was interdisciplinary between rehabilitation sciences, anthropology and sociology. And that really exposed me to a lot of different ideas and the different ways of thinking and a lot of different bodies of literature. And while I was there, Michael Iwama was also studying there for mm. his MSc. And he really encouraged me to write the paper that became what I called the sacred texts. And have, having written it, I actually sat on it for a year because I was quite certain that the, nobody would publish it. Wow, um, a whole year, yeah. okay. Yes. <laughs> and then eventually I thought, well, they're not gonna publish it if I don't submit it. So, so I submitted it and it's, and it's fellow, which was the, the paper published in the next issue was to do with self-care with the actual categories self-care productivity and leisure oh wow uh, um so th so that was really how it came about a lot of it was because he was very very supportive and really felt that my ideas should see the light of day so i owe him a great debt of gratitude well i think you guys must have been very uh influential to each other just knowing your work and his work and i i use the kawa <laughs> model almost daily yeah. so <laughs> I uh, I can see how you guys might align. That's that's amazing. It's, it's mind blowing to hear those two, like your name and his name. You guys were just like students and casual friends. Like that's that's really interesting in my brain to just put these two OTs that you know I read about. I read all your work and studied you, and then it's like, oh yeah, they were just you know hanging out and encouraged each other to publish like that's the right. couple of papers. That's I think it's really inspiring that you know everyone starts out as. A couple of OT friends. That's right. We were just yeah. chilling at UBC. <laughs> just chilling at UBC. <laughs> oh, well, UBC, I think, was very lucky to have you. Why, why is it important to critique and question our assumptions and theories? Why are you so passionate about that? I, I, I think because I always, I always feel that I'm still a clinician, even though I haven't actually worked in that role for many years. I still feel like a practitioner. Whereas 
there's a lot of academic disciplines that you can follow theory down a rabbit hole and it and it and it doesn't matter and and you can come out with an idea that isn't very well fleshed out and it doesn't matter in our profession it does matter because our theories inform our practices and our practices have real consequences for people's lives so i think it's tremendously important that we do critique our assumptions and our theories and our models and as a way of trying to ensure that we're not imposing on other people a, a worldview or a set of values that doesn't align with their own and that, that limits them and that really shuts down communication between therapist and patient or client. Um, and again, in the, my infamous sacred text paper was when I really began to, to point out the fact that our theories were very white, they're very middle class, they are very ableist, um, they reflect the views of people of positions of privilege, and, and I know that I am one, I, I match all of those, I tick all of those boxes. Yeah. But, but I also know that that statistically the majority of people in Canada and around the world who have severe illnesses, disabilities, impairments, they, they are people who are not in positions of privilege mm -hmm. to the great extent. I mean, clearly disability is the one devalued category that, that we are all vulnerable to. But, um, but the social distance between uh, therapists and most of their clients is, is already quite profound. And I, and I felt that we could ill afford for our models and theories to really double down on that and to overlook all of the things that mean so much to people in their, their daily lives. I mean, the, uh, the book that I know you are going to talk to me about later, but... Um, engagement and living in looking at the literature which I've been amassing for for many years um, there are just so many dimensions of occupation that are so meaningful in people's lives um, for say indigenous Maori people occupations that are done in in certain places in Aotearoa that are, that are profoundly meaningful that enable connections with ancestors um, uh, occupations that people engage in to to fulfill their, their spiritual obligations to I, I mean people people do engage in occupations that they don't even like to honor <laughs> to honor well to, to honor you know special people who've died I know in, uh, in, in my own life I, I knit sweaters for my niece and nephews small children because I know that that's what my mother would have done had she still been alive. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I really hate knitting. <laughs> I, my, I, I, I have quite sore fingers, so it's, it's quite a struggle, but it was, I, I was very committed to it. And, it, and, it, and it, it, was, it was meaningful to me and it was, it was something to which I was, I was very dedicated. And, and those are the sort of, I mean, it was definitely not self-care. I can assure you it was not leisure. And, <laughs> and, and it can, could hardly really be deemed productive when you could buy, go to a shop and, and buy something much nicer for half the price. So it's, but, there it, is meaning you know, but, there. but there's meaning there. And, and that's the sort of thing, that, the sort of occupations that people engage in in, in the outdoors um, that, 
that, that are maybe aimless in terms of objectives, but just the being out there, the being in nature, enjoying, enjoying birds. It, it can be something much more profound than leisure, you know, deeply healing to the soul, but it is, you know, didn't fit within the categories. And, and, and I could go on and on. There were so many dimensions and I, I was concerned, as I say, that as, as the years went by, um, you know, we seem to be doubling down on the categories as if they were somehow true or correct. And I, mean, I, felt, I felt that we needed to be a little more open-minded and more prepared to learn both from our clients and actually from just a vast amount of, of literature. I love that you said that because I know for myself, getting out of school, I <laughs> assumed self-care productivity and leisure was all research-based. And like, those are the boxes. <laughs> And I think, you know, a lot of your work has really reshaped the way I think about them. I want to take a quick step back because we started talking a little bit about like what is meaningful in occupation. I want to talk about this idea of who gets to engage in occupation and that ability versus opportunity piece. Go back to the privileged thinking. Uh, Yeah, I'm quite influenced by uh, Amartya Sen's uh, original vision of the capabilities approach. I'm less keen on Nussbaum's very prescriptive list of 10 categories that she feels are essential to being human, not least because they would mean that there are some people with severe impairments who would be regarded as not fully human, right. which is so profoundly offensive that I'm afraid I just, <laughs> I, draw a, I draw a line under Nussbaum's um, you know, t- 10 categories. But, um, but Sen's original articulation of capabilities basically being a combination of abilities and opportunities really spoke to me because I feel as occupational therapists, we've been very con- concerned with people's functions, their ability to do things. So that if somebody, for example, has had a stroke, we've been very concerned with them being able to do stuff again. So they, they, you know, can they brush their hair? Can they, can they bathe themselves? Can they dress themselves? How do, you know, how are they walking? Are they mobilizing in a wheelchair? So we've been, we've been, and, and all of those things are important. I'm not beginning to suggest that they are unimportant. They're profoundly important, but all of those things only take you so far. And beyond that, we need opportunities. So, that if, if somebody can mobilize in a wheelchair, but they live in a second floor apartment without an elevator, um, that's not going to be enormously helpful because they have no way of accessing the community. And if you live in a community where your disability or your, your impairment is viewed as being um, some sort of divine judgment or karma for you know, sins in a, in a former life, or, or you're shamed or you're made fun of, then even if the community is wheelchair accessible, it still, it is, it still basically prohibits you from being able to go out and, and enjoy the opportunities of the society that other people enjoy. So I'm very, I'm very wedded to the idea that yes, abilities are enormously important and they need to be fostered. And I mean, that's why child development is so important, why schools are so important. We need to foster abilities, but, um, but we also need to ins- make sure that people's opportunities are also there. And I think as occupational therapists, we need to be also assessing 
the opportunities that are realistically available in the environment. Because the fact that something is, that I know that something is available to me as an able-bodied, white, um, middle-class woman of a certain age, doesn't mean that I can necessarily assume that that same opportunity is available for somebody who doesn't fall you know, within my sort of privileged categories. And, uh, and certainly, I mean, reading some of the um, life experiences of people who are, say, transgendered, um, people from different racial groups who, who experience a lifetime of systemic racism, yeah, people with severe impairments, um, severe, uh, significant, uh, mitting, uh, mental illnesses, their, their opportunities can be severely uh, constrained. And I think that as a profession, we've, we've waxed poetic about how people choose shape and orchestrate their occupations as if there's a sort of a, a you know, an unlimited landscape of, of choices from which people can, can, can make those choices. But if, if people's opportunities are limited, then the parameters of their choices are also going to be severely constrained. Right. So everything from even interest checklists, that doesn't apply to so many people across Canada, let alone like across the world. Is that sure. part of this privileged thinking in opportunity? It, it absolutely is. And it's it's looking at you know whose values underpinned those checklists mm. what what a checklist necessarily <laughs> means to somebody who perhaps doesn't have very good literary skills or who for whom english or french is not their first language you know a lot of things are lost in translation and just an acknowledgement that the the position of somebody in society is going to either maximize or minimize the range of possible opportunities. And I think that as a profession, we've certainly, in, in all our sort of concentric circles, we've, we've named environments as physical, social, institutional, cultural, and then we sort of set that aside and, and we've recognized the importance of building ramps, for example, and make, maybe making um, children's playgrounds wheelchair accessible. Right. But I think we've done little beyond that to really look at how, for example, oppressive religious values significantly reduce the opportunities for some, in particular women, to participate in, in society in, in ways that they would value um, and, and ways that, that, for example, racism constrains you know, the real opportunities for people to, to enjoy the range of, of occupational opportunities that are their rights. And that all rings really true to me. But where I think myself and a lot of OTs who have graded in the last five or 10 years are kind of, we're starting to kind of think about this privileged idea. But when we think back on schooling, I think a lot of us reflect on how occupational therapy school is you learning a way of thinking, right? You're learning these models and not really learning that many hands-on skills because we're so diverse and we're such generalists, which is powerful. But if we're learning a way of thinking that's privileged thinking, how are we supposed to start reflecting on that? Like, what, what are we supposed to do now? Uh, that's a very interesting question. And even before that, I will go back to the, imagining the group of you in university when the 
Canadian profession decided to go to master's level entry, mm -hmm. there was a list of reasons why this would be beneficial to stakeholders. And the stakeholders were listed and, and enumerated. And what was intriguing to me was that clients were not listed as one of the stakeholders mm -hmm. who would benefit from this move. And I don't think that was an oversight. And mm -hmm. I think that, I mean, I am in awe of the quality and the caliber of the students who are now graduating from occupational therapy programs. There's no doubt at all in my mind that the master's level programs are producing some truly remarkable thinkers who are way beyond anywhere that I was, you know, at a similar age, 10 years later, 20 years later, and from whom I know I have a lot to learn. But I don't think we can also overlook the fact that for people who can afford to go to university for six years, <laughs> an even more privileged group than they were when I undertook my occupational therapy education many years ago. Yeah. And that the opportunity, for example, for people from rural areas, the people particularly from northern areas, to obtain a qualification in occupational therapy has now virtually vanished mm -hmm. because it means not only seeking funding for six years, it also means moving to a, a, a southern urban center for six years, which for many people is just not possible. And I don't think that we have, we have grappled at all with the in, within the profession about what that really means and by what, what important work we will not be doing because mm -hmm. it's not worth paying a six-year graduate to do and, and all of that really, really important, valuable work will get shifted now to volunteers or to OT aides or assistants. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I lament that. So I, th I think there's a tension there that we haven't grappled with. But, but to actually move on to your, to your question, I, I think one of the useful things in education would be if, and at all levels of education, if one was encouraged to think critically and to realize that one is not being told a universal truth. Because then as a student, we, you know, we would, one would accept that this is an idea and it's a, it's a valid idea and a valuable idea and it may be useful to me, but it, it, it's not the truth. It's not necessarily correct. And I should be open to changing my opinion about this seeming fact when I get out into the world and I learn from other people. And I, I think that would be a useful place to start. I think there also does need to be much more of an effort to help people to recognize their own privilege. Because I do think in Canada, as in so many places, we have developed a myth of meritocracy, mm -hmm. which suggests that I've achieved what I've achieved because I've worked really hard. And, and, and all of that is true, because you aren't going to achieve anything if you don't work hard. But, but then one does need to take a step back and look at what were the factors that, that put me in a position to work hard for, for, this, for this goal. 
maybe it was because you know I had two parents at home who had some time to help me with schooling or maybe it was because I lived in a nice neighborhood you know with, with safe recreational places and good schools or maybe it was because I lived in an urban center and I could go to university and live at home which saved money or that, that, that there are always factors that, that, that you know played in one's favor in order to put one in this position where you, where you could work hard to achieve your goals. And I think the, the, the danger of that myth of meritocracy is it quickly devolves into a, a blame game where people who don't manage to achieve that, uh, they obviously just didn't try hard. And if they would have just, you know, doubled down or, you know, they could have, they could have accomplished what I accomplished or, you know, what we've all accomplished. And, and I think we need to, to learn to, I mean, we can't, I cannot just undo my privilege, but I think it's incumbent on me to, to recognize it and reflect on it and be always mindful of the unseen advantages that it grants me and, and to use that privilege to stand alongside those who, who don't have those privileges and to consciously make space for their voices. I think also the, the OT profession really does need to make efforts to make sure that the student population does reflect the diversity of the population in Canada and maybe we need to be funding, for example, Inuit students or people from remote rural areas. We need to we need to be doing much more to make sure that our profession much you know much better reflects the population that we're that we're mandated to serve. Therabyte helps rehab practitioners automate the client journey from intake to invoice, saving you time and energy. Now is the time to take your practice digital, and Therabyte will help you get there. Join a community of professionals who are shaping the future of tech-driven healthcare with this Made in BC technology support tool designed for OTs. To learn more, visit therabyte.app. That's T-H-E-R-A-B-Y-T-E dot app. Right. So looking at who's taking the program, reflecting on what thinking are we teaching and being critical of our models and theories um, would be a great way to support future OTs. What about us white middle-class women right now practicing? How you started, you said we need to be aware of our privilege. How do you get started in that journey if we haven't already? I think schools, in my experience, are starting to really help you question and reflect on your positionality in the world. Where do we go from there? So now that I know I'm a privileged white woman, what now in my practice, in my day-to-day practice? Well, for sure, yeah. I, I, and I know it's hard. I, I mean, clearly there are a lot of resources. I mean, the recent Black Lives Matter protests have really, have really focused mm. um, more attention. And there's certainly a lot of uh, published papers, a lot of books that people can read to educate themselves. I think as with indigenous perspectives, it's very, it's very ironic that the, that the white privilege group somehow expects that people of color, or indigenous people will 
will educate us about mm -hmm. colonialism and about racism um, as if they haven't got enough to do and as if they should take this on for free. Yeah, um, they've got I an think, appealing and yeah, they should get paid <laughs> if they're going to be teaching, right? <laughs> if they're going to be teaching, if they're going to be teaching, they should need, they need to get paid. And yeah. <laughs> we, we should not be so lazy as to expect somebody else to provide all of this information for our immediate consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a start. I think that I think the self-education is a start. But then even within our workplaces, I think we need to look at, for example, how are our practices actively discriminating against people who are from other, other social groups? I mean, a lot of OTs work in private practices where presumably services are provided not on the basis of need, but of the ability to pay. So I think that that might be something that needs looking at. And maybe just as I know in, in Vancouver, for example, there are a number of dentists who provide services for free on certain days for people who are really struggling, people from the downtown east side. Mm -hmm. And perhaps um, occupational therapists in private practice might look at doing something similar. I think even within the, the, the provincial health services, for example, if you were working at a, at a, um, at a rehabilitation centre, I know sometimes people complain that, for example, Indigenous people don't attend for follow-up appointments. And I think we need to look at why are they not doing so? What, why are we not providing a, a, a safe, uh, welcoming environment that they feel they can come to? Or, or is it that the times at which we're providing services don't suit their needs? I mean, occupational therapists like to work sort of eight to four or nine to five, Monday to Friday, which means that an awful lot of people are not able to take advantage of our of our services so and perhaps, maybe their first service wasn't meaningful to them maybe it maybe it wasn't meaningful the second one no we missed and, the mark. And, and and maybe they have transportation issues maybe they have childcare issues maybe it would be more helpful for them if if we moved our clinic where they were than they we expect them to come to us so I think that, that, that there's ways of beginning to unpack our privilege and look at how our own services are, are, are really colluding with oppression. And, and as you rightly point out, it may very well be that, that the services that we were attempting to provide didn't match anything that they, that they felt as meaningful, which gets me back to the self-care unless you're bandwagon yes because then we if we have assessments that are ostensibly client-centered like the canadian occupational performance measure which is client-centered mm -hmm. in as much as you're asking the clients you know how is your satisfaction with this and what are the things within this category that you want to do what's your satisfaction with your performance but those are our categories so that is not a client-centered measure and, and if, if we've come at somebody and asked them, you know, I, again, I keep referring back to some the example of somebody with a stroke, but if, we, if we've been banging on about, you know, are you able to dress yourself and, and, and really prom promoting this as, as a goal that, that everybody should adhere to, mm -hmm. that may not be relevant. And for some people who live in a more collective, supportive social context, they may have family members for whom it would be a privilege to help their mother to dress themselves. 
and who who would feel deprived of a meaningful occupation if 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 mama grandma was was to do that herself and maybe she would rather conserve her energy for things that are much more meaningful maybe she would rather read to her grandchildren or maybe she would rather yeah play cards with her friends all manner of things that maybe would be more meaningful and in, in perhaps fulfilling in her role as an elder in her community and so maybe our forms of assessment have already ruled out, you know, or, or, or sort of crossed us off as a profession that's seeming to offer anything that might be relevant for people. And I, I think we need to be open to that possibility. Right. So if you had, you know, you're in charge of the next draft, what do you throw out the categories altogether? Like we do need to support our thinking a little bit. So we're all doing a similar job. Like I understand why we need boxes and we need categories and we need certain things to tick off. So, I mean, we already have a hard enough time telling people what we do as occupational therapists because we do work in so many settings. Where do we go from here? What, are, what, do, what do we look at as OD? Okay, okay. so if I, was, if I was given the job of revising the model, we'd, we'd start off with changing the name because enabling is a very unfortunate and paternalistic name because if I enable you, we are not equal. And if at the... the Canadian model of occupation, of um, client-centered model of enablement or whatever it's called, it, it lists the skills of the therapist and it doesn't even mention the client. So how this is client-centered is bewildering to me. So I would, I would, so I would start by getting rid of, the, of the, the word enablement right on the cover. But no, in terms of what we then look at in terms of self-care, productivity and leisure, I... In my book, I have suggested that we need to turn things around and look instead at well-being and the important dimensions of well-being that seem to be important to, uh, I won't say all the world's people, but dimensions of them uh, do seem to be perhaps almost universally relevant. Mm -hmm. So I had delineated these as being surviving and thriving which would incorporate perhaps some of the ideas we had around self-care, but would also include much more fundamental things, maybe like sourcing water, firewood, food, and then also belonging and connecting because so many people have articulated the importance of occupations through which they, they, they can work with others or connect with others whether these be other people, other communities, with their ancestors, um, with their spiritual world. So belonging, connecting is hugely important. Having a sense of self-worth is hugely important. Certainly enjoying purpose, meaning and pleasure through occupational engagement. Having the opportunity to enact choices, which means, again, another focus on opportunities. And also having hope. And I don't mean in hope that things are going to get better, but just that the, there is a hopeful future in which I might be able to envision myself doing things that are important to me and enjoying experiences that are important to me. So within that sort of well-being framework, I've suggested that people might identify what matters to them. So what are their well-being aspirations and their unmet needs, which would be 
their desired outcomes of their occupational therapy programs. So really focusing on what matters. And so then, so assessing their capabilities would be then looking at their individual or their family or their group or community characteristics because obviously just assessing an individual is not enough because again, referring back to my hypothetical lady with the stroke, yeah. if she has a family who are remarkably supportive, perhaps a life partner who, who dotes on her and who is quite happy to spend all day um, doing things with her in the way that is important to her and, and therefore important to both of them, then it's the, the, the two become much greater than the, than the sum of their parts. And uh, people that, you know, we can look at collective capabilities, assessing the strengths of the community. So really doing an assessment of their strengths and their assets and their abilities, as well as their environmental factors and their resources and then the barriers to opportunity. So I do still envision an outline or that, that would enable particularly new OTs to follow and give a framework for thinking, but hopefully in a way that would truly become more client-centered in terms of really facilitating a probing of uh, people's aspirations and the needs and the values that they have and then obviously then the outcome assessment would be the degree to which we had helped them to realize those aspirations. Right. And I like this idea of well-being. And if we're working in well-being and more of those dimensions of health, is that the same as working in like healthcare and clinic-based? Or are you kind of proposing that we move more to the community and a population-based focus? Definitely both. And I think the idea that the service we have now is a healthcare service is, is really a, it's a misnomer. It, it's a sick care service. Most people don't go to hospital if they're well. And if they, if they do, they get turned away. <clears throat> I, I certainly think that that hospital-focused, sickness-focused model of care is is always going to be enormously important and people who've had severe injuries who've had you know devastating illnesses they certainly need or, or you know could usefully use help from occupational therapists to re-establish their lives and re-engage in living but i think we have limited ourselves too much by pursuing that model of care because if we truly do believe what we say we believe mm -hmm. which is the that engagement in valued occupations actually is life enhancing and contributes to well-being then clearly our knowledge is is of importance and relevance to a much wider group than just people who are already ill so certainly i think that we have a we could play a huge role in the community in in promoting wellness promoting well-being and as a form of of health promotion and prevention of of a, of a lot of illness so much research that looks at the adverse effects of loneliness among elderly people of inactivity in elderly people of, of social isolation and there's, there's there's so many opportunities for 
helping people to re-engage in nature, um, to re-engage in, in community settings. And I think that occupational therapy does have or could have an enormous role to play uh, in a far bigger way than, than we have up until now. Certainly in, in Europe, there are now schemes where there's they call it social farming and there's, mm. there's small farms and they, they are productive they grow vegetables for sale and and some of them maybe milk cows or, or raise goats or sheep and the, the people who work there maybe have struggled with addiction issues or mental illness or or, 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 they're, or they're elderly and lonely um, and and it's a way of bringing people together it gives them an opportunity to belong uh, in a valued group and to connect, to engage in nature and, and, and to do something meaningful and purposeful for their community. And, and what one can imagine all manner of opportunities like that, that I, I really believe that occupational therapists could, could really play a huge role in. And, and then the same way in Britain, they, they now have a program that they call social prescribing mm. because they, they realized that about 50% of people who were going to see their, their family doctor were not doing so for an illness, but were doing so because they were lonely or had other social issues. And the social prescribing has, has fostered people's engagement in music groups or art groups or cooking groups or walking groups. This, this is, it's actually saving the health service money, and I'm, and I'm not saying that's the most important thing but it, it's not inconsequential but it's 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 providing people with connections to community it's it's in, it's facilitating the development of, of social support systems and improving physical mental health and well-being and and so I think I think that we have limited ourselves too much and there's 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 just so much more we could do definitely I want to jump into uh, the impact of a pandemic and occupational disruption that's affected a lot of privileged people that have never really experienced it before, may not have experienced it to this extreme. Is it going to kind of level our thinking or is it at least going to give some people a taste of what that loneliness is or what not having the opportunity to do occupations feels like? I think when it first started, that was what I thought. I thought, you know, finally, the rest of us are experiencing what it's like to be not able to go to many places you would like to go. You know, if, if you're shabbily dressed, you may be refused entry to a restaurant or a museum, an art gallery, a swimming pool, all, all manner of the opportunities that some of us enjoy many other people do not. And, I, and I, I think at the beginning, I did naively think that maybe this would enable the majority dominant population to see what it is like to not be able to, well, frankly, to not have the occupational opportunities from which to choose. But as time has gone on, I've realized that actually, no, as in so many other areas of life, privilege has led to a much more privileged experience of the pandemic so mm -hmm. that for people who are able to work at home and telecommute to have access to you know computer technology and the sort of job that you can do at a distance 
they still have their paycheck, they have a way of connecting with colleagues. If you have home internet service, you, you can Zoom, you can connect with family and friends. I know for myself, I do, I've attended a Zoom birthday party. <laughs> I connect with, with family and friends in Norway and in England and, 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 and across Canada in ways that, that, that people who don't have home internet are simply unable to do. And, and also people who are more privileged tend to live in areas that have quality green spaces, safe places to walk, so that if you do manage to get out once a day or every couple of days for a walk, you have somewhere nice to do so. Uh, again, which is an opportunity that's, that's not available to people who live in unsafe neighborhoods, you know, where, or where they're subjected to, you know, the threats of violence. And, and crime. So uh, th there's so many ways um, in which, well, but, uh, and, and really the internet's the game changer because um, people are taking, you know, cooking classes online, they're learning new languages online, they can look up a sourdough recipe online, um, and, <laughs> and, and, and they can afford to buy the ingredients. And, and I know um, I have a friend who works in a, in a music store, and I was quite interested that as soon as the pandemic hit, the music store was declared an essential service right. and uh, because people were suddenly um, able to learn the guitar or the violin or or you know the thing that they'd been meaning to do mm -hmm. and they had the money to do so and so i i think that the that the experience has has truly not been equally shared the dark side of the of the pandemic is that people in lower socioeconomic groups and a lot of racialized people are also those who've been most vulnerable to the virus because they're the frontline workers. They're the ones who are doing the cleaning, working transit. Um, they're the orderlies in hospitals. They're working in the grocery stores. And they're the and front lines that don't have masks and don't the, have education around how to stay safe. That's exactly right. Yeah. And they are also more likely to be confronted by privileged members of the public who feel that they have a, a human right not to wear the mask. Mm -hmm. So they, they, they're also more likely to live in overcrowded conditions. And as we saw in some areas, people were extremely vulnerable to the virus because one member of the family would be working in a packing plant and another member of the family would be working in long-term care. Yeah. So the, it's also a sad fact that the that the vulnerability to the virus has not been equally shared and that the majority of the people who've died, and I mean, this is particularly notable in the States, but it's the same in Canada, are disproportionately drawn from racialized and lower socioeconomic groups. Yeah. So do you think this has shifted us more to like as a profession or just people of privilege are we shifting more into that individualism or are we shifting towards understanding the importance of a more collective and collaborative society i think it's a little too soon to tell i what i and and again not everybody in the profession obviously thinks the same way 100%. but i one thing i am truly excited about is the response of the profession to the Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. which I think 
has been magnified because of the pandemic. And I think that the rage which had has festered for centuries, I think it, I think it was no coincidence that it boiled over um, in, in the instance of, of the pandemic. So I'm certainly, I, I was, I was so proud when CAOT produced its unequivocal statement about no silence in the face of inequality. I, I my little heart um, <laughs> swelled, swelled with pride at being a CAOT member, and and particularly in in contrast to the rather delayed and lukewarm response from our neighbours to the south. I, I I I was truly proud, and I think the other thing that's been really encouraging for me is how people who are concerned are reaching out and finding each other so that um, there is a group of, for example, indigenous occupational therapists in Canada and also um, Aotearoa, New Zealand, who are reaching out to um, like-minded supporters and really advocating for change. There are um, academics and critical thinkers within the profession who are reaching out to each other and seeking ways to in, engage really meaningfully around self-education, around racism, and also action. We cannot just um, learn and feel smug that we have become a little more woke um, there, needs, <laughs> there, need, there needs to be change. And I'm, I'm reminded that, that, that decades ago in some universities that, that women who were appointed um, as academic faculty in departments of feminist studies had to say what they were also doing. So they couldn't, ju they couldn't just talk the talk. They truly had to walk the walk. And so some of them were involved with, for example, um, women's shelters, um, you know, with providing um, support to, to women, um, you know, fleeing domestic violence and abuse. And, and so there was, there was a, there had to be a doing component for them to actually, um, you know, aspire to having an academic posting. And I think that, um, I think there's going to be some of that sort of sense coming, and I'm and I'm that, that that we need to act. We cannot just think, and we cannot just um, you know critique the status quo. Um, that the change is going to need all of us in a sustained effort. And and so I'm I am actually really excited that for the for the first time in in my career, I really feel that the ground is shifting, and that really significant numbers of people are reaching out, finding each other and, and holding hands and looking at, you know, where can we go? How can we stand together? How can we stand with others? And, and how can we actually begin to, to, to make change? So I, I think that that's really exciting. October is Occupational Therapy Month. I've been loving the hashtag OT365 posts on social. It's been inspiring to see all that we do across the province and across the country. Share how you are celebrating or taking action this year. Happy OT Month. 
So how do we find that balance of looking inwards and doing and changing our own academia, our own thought processes, those pieces, and then doing as an advocacy and doing as in making change in the world? Is though like, do you think that's two different groups that are doing different things? Does everyone need to be doing both? How do we find a balance as a profession and as individual clinicians? I think everybody's in different positions and there's an old English proverb that says something like everybody has to row with the oars that they have. Mm, love that. And, and I, and I, I think there's something to that. And I, I mean, certainly as a, you know, as an individual practitioner, you know, it's, it, you, you can't take on the world, but I think it's, it's, I think there's going to be a call to action for all of us to look at how, what we realistically can do and then maybe push it a bit further than that so that we don't acquiesce to situations that that are unjust and it might be just for example colluding with the denial of equipment that we know is needed that maybe we need to advocate harder for the equipment that we know needs to be provided to somebody and and not take not take no for an answer when the funder says you know that they're not going to provide it so i i think we all have whatever whatever our role we we all have an opportunity to 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 take it a little further and certainly our researchers can help us by making sure that whatever research project they're involved with has that angle of looking at the bigger picture you've been challenging some of our thinking for a long time or the profession's thinking for a long time what were some of the roadblocks and obstacles you've experienced because I feel like the things that you were talking about aren't anything that people can really say oh that's not true or I don't really believe that so I'm I'm always worried when we do anything in regards to advocacy or trying to challenge systemic racism like there's a lot of people agreeing and nodding yet yeah, like let's do it but what are those real life obstacles and roadblocks that you've hit along the way and what do you think might be coming yes it's interesting to me i feel as if i've made a career out of stating the obvious but <laughs> i it's it's not been as easy as you might think it's things that i say now in 2020 are no different than i was saying in 2004 really when i published my dimensions of meaning paper mm-hmm. and the pushback has been really enormous oh as as recently as 2010 which which in in my lifetime doesn't seem that long ago i was told that it's disrespectful to critique other people's models which i i found profoundly distressing because it's it suggests that somehow these things are carved in stone and i cannot imagine another discipline in which one is not allowed to critique the uh, the, the underlying um, principles, I find it bewildering. So that whereas now... That's like inquiry, right? That's the process, is questioning it and re, reworking it and seeing how to make it work better. It, it's sort of the point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and so whereas, whereas now, I, I, you know, I do think most people do agree with me that those categories you know, do need at least to be rethought. It... it it wasn't an easy path and I have 
had some smoking hot emails over the years. <laughs> I, and I, I published a paper once that, that questioned whether occupational therapists were actually client-centered in every situation and all occasions. And received an email on that occasion, which, I mean, frankly, would constitute hate mail. It was, I mean, it was, it was laughable. It was so vile. <laughs> and so it's, it, it's given me a little insight because as you say, what, what I'm, what I've been saying isn't, uh, isn't really very odd and it's not disrespectful. In fact, to me, it's more, di it's more disrespectful not to engage with people's theories. And I, I am so open to people telling me you know what I because I know that I have blinkers and I can I can only see you know certain things so I'm really encouraging people to tell me in my new book you know that you've you've really missed the point in this one or you know you're like but you know did you think of this and uh, and because we're all learning there is we haven't ever reached a, you know a final point right. so it's and certainly I know by about only within about a year of the sacred text papers, I was told um, yeah, by one of the editors of a of a of a of a, an esteemed OT journal that everyone was sick of my critiques. So it's it, it's it's. I mean, for wow. me, yeah. it, it's it's like a red red flag to a ball. I, I as I say, I, I'm really pleased if people engage with my ideas but don't dismiss me. <laughs> so, so the more, the more I've been dismissed, then, then I guess the angrier I have become and the, the, the more assertive. And I think that it would be my lesson then for going forward with, with changes that are far more meaningful and important than, than what I've been trying to chip away <laughs> at within our within our little profession that if we that if we're actually aspiring to make real changes that will affect the occupational rights of all people you know in in all communities then we need to be aware that we will be that we our ideas will be dismissed that we will be belittled that we may receive vile emails but that we need to keep chipping away and in the fullness of time what we're doing now in 2020 maybe by 2030 will will have really borne fruit so i think the we must not be discouraged and we need to just keep yeah moving forward and and seeking to make the changes that we believe need to be made so i'm hearing a couple of themes there so how to make a difference now about something meaningful is you need some resilience. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I like your idea of coming together. So seeking like-minded OTs or like-minded people, uh, community groups or whoever mm -hmm. that you can be working with um, and being prepared for um, people not taking you seriously or for shutting your ideas down. What, is there anything else that you've kind of really thought, oh, if I could go back, I might've done this mm -hmm. to ruffle less feathers or more feathers or, um, do you think we just need people at different, like that have different roles? We need someone that everyone's mad at so that we can make, you know, small gains in other areas. Is there anything else you'd add? Like how, how I like those three, but what else? <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, and I think, I mean, I never, I certainly never intended to make anybody angry. I mean, I, I, I certainly, I, I, I believed my perspective was, was valid or, or worth raising. And to be honest, at the beginning, I was very open to the, to the idea that somebody would write a paper that would rebut what I had suggested. And I would be able to sit back and think, oh, yeah, I never thought of that. And, oh, yeah, you know, I, I see that, you know, I, I was a bit naive to suggest this. Or that. So, so I was certainly open to being challenged or, but as I say, um, the, that, that, the challenge didn't come, the engagement didn't come, what came was dismissal. And, and, I, and I think that that is um, a lesson. So I, I don't know that I would have done much differently than I did, because after all, um, the reality is one needs to get published. And so, whereas now, I mean, I'm not at all technologically savvy, and I'm actually really very busy, so I don't, I don't do any social media. Um, I know years ago I asked Michael Iwama if I should go on Facebook, and he said, don't do it, because you'll be swamped. <laughs> Right. So I never did. I never did. And, and I'm happy about that. But I know uh, perhaps <clears throat> if I was in this position, you know, 15 years ago, I might have been able to get my ideas out on, I don't know, Twitter or YouTube or, or, or <clears throat> TikTok. Or some, yes, TikTok. Because, there we go. There we go. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard of that one too. But, um, <clears throat> but certainly when I was writing, writing was, the only really option and the um and so one had to get published so there are also the work there were obviously the uh, constraints that went with that but i think now moving forward i think we need to be bold we need to be certain of our position and sincere in our attempts and we must not be deterred Right. And engage. I th- I love that. Like if anyone else would have engaged in that conversation, whether they were for <laughs> self-care productivity or le- leisure or <laughs> totally against you, but engaged with a new idea, we would have sure. had more discussions, right? And it takes <laughs> more than the first person. We need the conversation and that continued yes. engagement. It goes back again to the importance of educating ourselves and that awareness that we are positioned that many of us are well-educated and, you know, in privileged class positions and to, to maintain a consciousness of what that really means. And I like the idea of the cultural humility so that we, we aspire to create a safe, welcoming environment for our clients or patients and that we do so with that humility. And I think part of the, the requirement to, for that humility is, is, is a recognition of ourselves and part of that is a recognition of our own privilege. And I think that the more we're able to do that and really reflect on the opportunities that we have to use our abilities and the opportunities that we have had to foster our abilities and how those differ from other people, I think will make us better occupational therapists I think we will seem less judgmental, less prescriptive, and much closer allies to the people that we that we are working with. Mm-hmm. And that's the point, right? Like that's mm-hmm. why that's why we all do what we do. 
Absolutely. And, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's just, that's sitting really nice for me. I want to know more about your new book and what you're working on and what you're trying to share. My book is called Engagement in Living and it's critical perspectives on occupation rights and well-being. And I'm happy, happy that it's been published by CAOT. So the book is a culmination of everything I've been reading and thinking for probably the last decade or two decades. So it looks a lot at why I think we need to review all of our theories and models and our assumptions and where they come from and what they blind us to. So it, it's a, a gentle introduction, I guess, to, to sort of critical thinking. It's, it's a, a, a deep dive into well-being and what literatures from around the world have identified as important to people in their everyday lives. And it's a analysis of how we might change our practices and reformulate our client-centered practices to incorporate that knowledge and how we might aspire as a profession to assuring people's occupational rights uh, congruent with what the World Federation of Occupational Therapists has exhorted us to do so that instead of viewing our role in life as maximizing the function or the self-care skills of individual people with impairments, that we might take a much bigger view and look at maximizing the occupational rights of people, viewing them as human rights, that people do have the right to engage in occupations that contribute positively to their own well-being and the well-being of their communities, that this is a human right and that we need to start um, looking at that much more seriously and with, from a much more sustained way than we have done before. So the other thing is it has a beautiful cover. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's a perk right there, just to put on your bookshelf, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Somebody, uh, there was an academic from Norway who sent me a photograph of, uh, you could see my book cover and, and her dog laying below her. And she was laying in her hammock um, in Norway reading my book. So that was pretty neat. That's so cool. What was the inspiration behind the, the cover? Uh, well, I wanted, I didn't want any people on the cover because I felt that as soon as you put people on, it suggests the book's about these people and not those people. So it's about children and not elderly, or it's about elderly and not not this group or families. Or, so I didn't want any people. I wanted spheres which suggested the globe or much broader perspectives, intersecting perspectives, many perspectives. And then I really wanted the rainbow colors to indicate support for LGBTQ2 plus people and the, the, the idea that we are a rainbow people and yeah, I, I'm quite, I'm going to digress on a little story now, but Perfect. when Pete Seeger, I think it was, had a song about rainbow children and it was, it was hated by the Anders Bering Breivik, who was the white supremacist who bombed the Oslo government buildings and then massacred, I think, 69 young people on an island. And when he and he he expressed the fact that he had really hated this song about the idea of the rainbow children, 
or they were people. And uh, the first day of his trial, the Norwegian people gathered in Oslo outside the courthouse and loudly sang the song so that you could hear it inside. And I thought that was very moving. Yeah. That is some inspiration for a book cover right there. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) So what is the connection between occupational rights and human rights? And how does that play into transforming systems so they're more inclusive? Human rights, after all, are social creations. There uh, There is nothing that is inherently a human right. The human rights are what we agree upon as a, as a global community, our, our, our human rights. So as a global community, it's been agreed that, for example, the right to uh, water, food, shelter, healthcare, education, that, you know, these are fundamental human rights. And if you look at health is one of the things, the elements that's been identified as a human right and if as my book aims on unequivocally to demonstrate occupation is a determinant of health Mm -hmm. and a determinant of human well-being i think it can then certainly be argued that occupation the right to engage in occupation is a human right certainly it's implicit in some dimensions for example the right to employment the right to education those are already enshrined in the declarations that have been signed of course the united states although it did sign the original declaration of human rights has very carefully not signed indigenously universal declarations on indigenous rights the rights of the child the rights of women disabled people's rights but that's that's a, a sort of a, a side comment But I think that, um, and it's one of the things I'm hoping to achieve in my book, is to enable people to recognize, or hoping that they will agree with me, that if health is a human right, and if occupation contributes significantly to health, then occupation is, is also a human right. And I have chosen in my work to focus on occupational rights more than justice, because I think rights are unequivocal, Justice suggests scales and balances and a decision about what's right, what's fair. So I I think that it's, I would certainly agree that a violation of occupational rights is an occupational injustice. I'm less certain about declaring what is occupational justice, although I'm quite sure that other other thinkers may be be able to accomplish that for me, but that's, that's my own take on it. So I I try to focus on occupational rights and then to see any violation of occupational rights uh, as an occupational injustice. Mm -hmm. How important do you see the World Federation of Occupational Therapists? I think it's hugely important. I'm so pleased that Canada is, is a member. The World Federation conferences are really fantastic. I know when when I was a student in Liverpool many years ago, the principal told us that if we ever had a chance to go to a World Federation of OT Congress, we should go because it would be enormous fun. (laughs) And I remember I was probably about 19 and I thought the, the idea of going to this conference being enormous fun did seem a little bit bizarre. But having now been to several, I I attended one in London and then after a gap of several years I was in Chile 
and then Japan, and then most recently in South Africa. They are certainly a tremendous amount of fun. What an opportunity to learn from people in other places, to be inspired by how they working with disadvantaged communities or street children, so many different impoverished rural settings or disadvantaged urban communities, learning from people who have have taken our basic knowledge base and it and and applied it in in very different circumstances and i whenever i go to those conferences i fill my day up with going to lecture after lecture just trying to learn as much as i can and just being inspired and relishing the connections of, of meeting with people from other places and <clears throat> in more recent years it's been really inspiring for me to to meet people from 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 very different backgrounds from my own and to be told you know that my work has touched them i mean the fact that they even have read it is 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 astonishing to meet people from say iran or soweto or <laughs> in Nicaragua or you know people who have, have have read my work is really moving and meaningful to me and the, the yeah the conferences have been amazing and and um, certainly doing a keynote um, in South Africa was even while I was giving it I know I was thinking to myself this is the best moment of my life this is that the opportunity to do this because I'm just I'm just Karen Hamill. I'm just somebody who left Liverpool with a, a diploma in occupational therapy. I fell into academia and I fell into writing because it's something that I can do from home and, and we move about a lot. So that works well. And it was astonishing. And there were two spontaneous rounds of applause in the midst of my keynote, which I know is unusual, but one amusingly was when I challenged the categories of self-care productivity and leisure and pointed out how limiting they were and obviously I was not the only person who thought so and also later on I reiterate, reiterated what I've said before which is that um, there needs to be a much more exchange of ideas across international boundaries the North should not always view itself as having the um, privilege of bestowing its superior knowledge to the South. The South has so much from which we should and could learn. And I made the comment that clearly one tiny corner of the Western world does not enjoy a monopoly on wisdom. And uh, they liked that too. So that was, that, yeah, that was meaningful to me. <laughs> what do you love about OT? I just think it's, uh, and I'm thank you for even asking me that question because I have been told that when my work is discussed in classes, and, and particularly I heard about a class in, in New York where the students said that Karen Hamill must really hate OT. And I must say that that bothered me because I really love OT. And if, if I didn't think OT was worth fighting for, I, I would do something else. I, I, I have a lot of interests. and. And, and I read a lot. There's other things that I, that I could write about if I, if I wanted to write. So I think OT just has a tremendous potential. 
and there's so much i mean that i i wrote a little piece when when the covid lockdown started for what is it? Now. Oh, Tina, i don't okay, know i shared you. it to all my platforms so you're okay. on social media for sure for me okay. <laughs> talking about the pandemic and really emphasizing all the knowledge that we already had that that would help us and others to cope with the uncertainty with the occupational deprivation that we're experiencing and i i just think we have so much to to offer the world for people who are lonely who are marginalized people who have are denied their occupational rights because they are refugees or asylum seekers people struggling with mental illness people with with physical impairments and injuries and people who are currently well people who need to get more engaged in living maybe to do more physical things interact with nature more we we know so much we know so much about how important occupation is and yeah i think it's just a thrilling profession and and yeah no i really love ot I have one more question. How do you describe OT? What's your elevator pitch? I tell them that occupational therapy as a profession works to assist people to engage in the everyday occupations that they value or they need to do. And that this might perhaps be by helping them to increase their abilities and perhaps also by addressing the environmental barriers that limit their opportunities to use their abilities. It's been fun chatting with you, Jen, and thank you for the opportunity. Oh, no, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's all mine. Thank you for joining us on CAOTBC, the podcast. Connect with us by emailing CAOTBC at CAOT.ca with podcast in the subject line. I'm your host, Jen Talbenze. Music in this episode was provided by PurplePlanet.com.